Uh, our scripture reading, we'll get right into God's word. Our scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. It says, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Our message this Sabbath continues in our series on apologetics. It is entitled, The Truth About Hell. The Truth About Hell. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for being better to us than we are to ourselves. I pray once again, Lord, that you just make me a nail on the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. There's no point in me being seen or heard today, Father. We need to hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bible and you want to turn, turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. And we are going to, we're going to cover a, another challenging topic. Um, and we're going to start with this parable. Start with this parable. Jesus is telling, to give some context about the parable, Jesus is giving this parable after he has dealt with the Pharisees um, and really given them word that they have been given such advantage in their ability to, to understand Moses and the law and um, how they have failed. And so the parable, um, you would, you would, if, you would, if you were there, you would probably have seen Jesus turn from his disciples and begin to give this parable directly to the Pharisees. If you don't understand that context, it's harder to understand the parable, but this is a parable specifically for them. And it speaks to um, what was an ancient Jewish kind of traditional thought around Abraham and his bosom and other things. Um, and so uh, we're going to get into this parable in order to get into our overall topic. Luke 16 and verse 19 says, there was a certain rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. That means he ate very well. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The Bible gives us this parable, a story of a man who's so wealthy that his clothing is pristine. Um, he eats the best food of the time. And so he lives so well that there's, he, his house is gated, the Bible even says, um, as, the, as, the, as Lazarus is laid at his gate. And then it juxtaposes this man with a man named Lazarus. No connection to the Lazarus who Jesus would literally raise from the dead a few weeks later. And so here he is laying at the gate, he is begging out of hunger, and he is probably so malnourished and so, uh, um, you know, probably experienced so much physical trauma that his body is full of sores. He is not someone you would want laying at the foot of your driveway every day when you came home. And although the rich man is eating well, the Bible says that all Lazarus desired in verse 21 is to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He wasn't asking the man to make him lasagna. Donnie, he wasn't asking for lasagna. 
All he wanted was the crumbs, just what you would throw away. The scripture says his plight was so terrible. The dogs came and licked his sores. This man was not simply a man who was poor and hungry. He was sickly from sores. And the fact that the Bible says he was laid at the gate means he probably had no ability to transport himself. So he couldn't even fend off the wild dogs. The story switches in verse 22. The Bible says, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. So, according to the parable, the, the, when the beggar dies, the angels carry him to Abraham's bosom. Now notice, it doesn't say it carries him to heaven. It carries him to Abraham's bosom because this was the thought and the thinking of the Pharisees. Let's go a little deeper. You see, they tied, they tied, I'm a little warm today. They tied their salvation to their lineage from Abraham. You get that? So to them, salvation was in Abraham. So when he died, they thought, you know, you would be brought to Abraham's bosom. They had elevated Abraham, and Jesus deals with that in other parts of the New Testament and in the Gospels. But the rich man also died, and he was buried. The Bible says when he was in hell, he lifted up his eyes, and he was being tormented. He saw Abraham way off, and Lazarus in his lap, or in his bosom. And the, the, the rich man clearly doesn't like this. The parable continues. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, from this people have come to the conclusion that hell is a place that is burning right now. They've also come to the conclusion that hell burns forever. These are very dangerous assumptions, as we're going to show you. Now, what's interesting is these people also believe that somehow your body, as the, the parable says, can be buried, but your soul is in torment. But that doesn't make logical sense because souls don't get thirsty. Right? Would he really be asking for water? God, Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees a lesson, which we'll get to. But I want you to see that because of this story, many have a false concept of hell. But Abraham said, son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Verse 26, and beside all this, between us and you, there is a great what? Gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can you pass to us, that would come from thence. And so it gives you this idea that hell exists now and it's way over here and heaven's somewhere over here and somehow you can look from heaven to hell, but you can't cross the gulf. Um, there are people who believe that on Halloween, Christians that believe on October 31st, somehow there's a way to pass from one of these places to the other. Now, 
I haven't gotten to the lesson of the parable, but I want to submit to you that if you don't understand this parable, you get a very, not only a wrong understanding of hell, but by default, you get a misunderstanding of God and his character. The reason this doctrine is essential to understand is because if not, you would be serving a God who revels in the torture of individuals forever. There's not many doctrines, and if I've heard uh, Professor Walter Veit say this in his testimony and, and others, that literally this is one of the doctrines that caused people to leave the church. Because their church taught that you not only is hell burning now, but that it burns forever. And even if for 60 years uh, you lived and died, you would pay, if you weren't saved, you would pay for that life of not being saved with eternal punishment and torture. I don't believe we serve that kind of God. So what happens? People start to do things like this. And this turns people away from Christianity. This is a sign, a real sign. Someone standing outside of the store and it says, repent, turn to Jesus or burn. You know, I learned when I, in doing um, uh, cigarette um, and nicotine um, um, dependence classes and trying to get people to quit smoking, I've learned that fear is a poor motivator. It works for a little while. You show them the black lungs and you talk to them about um, the diseases they're going to get and you can scare people and they'll try and quit smoking. But as soon as they're stressed out, guess what? They go right back to smoking. Why? Because the immediate benefit outweighs the idea that somewhere distant in the future, I'm going to get emphysema or cancer. Spiritually, the same thing kind of applies. Your motivation to be saved cannot be that you don't want to burn. If the reason you're a Christian is, is, is an attempt to avoid punishment and uh, uh, eternal persecution, if that's your motivation, you're not going to be very successful at being a Christian. The motivation to being a Christian is found in the love of God. It is found in having a relationship with him that there is nothing on earth that is more important than your relationship with him. You want to spend eternity with God so much you'll give up anything necessary on earth. How would I get those individuals to, to uh, one of the tools we used, I should say, to help them quit smoking was index cards. You probably heard me say this before. And on one side of the card, we would write a, 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 a you know, a, a, a word of encouragement. You know, if they were Christian, I would have, the, it was at the Veterans Hospital, I'd have them write, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on one side. Then on the other side of the card, we'd have them write a reason they want to quit. And they would write, um, you know, I want to be alive to see my granddaughter uh, graduate from college. And I would say during the two weeks where we were turning down their cigarettes, um, you know, how many they smoke trying to wean them off. Uh, I would say before you smoke, you've got to read both sides of the card. Because now your motivation to quit smoking isn't in the fact that one day you might wind up on an iron lung, which we don't use anymore. But, you know, not that you might have to have some terrible cancer with chemotherapy and a lung resection. Your desire to quit smoking, you are made mindful in the moment that every cigarette you smoke is might keep you from something you love. Christianity is not a game of avoiding punishment. It is, it is a serious endeavor into a relationship with a loving God. 
Now, let's see what the things say. So this is an ABC Religion and Ethics. They wrote a, a really good opinion piece. On, you know, I don't agree with what Lalo they said, but they say the obscenity of belief in an eternal hell. That's what this article says. You know, it, it, it's it's horrible. They said, you know, they go on and on and really mock and take and take apart Christians for believing this. There's a great poll. And this is this poll. The poll was done by um, the Pew Research Group. Uh, most Americans believe in biblical God, heaven and hell and a purpose for suffering. But look at what it says. Fifty eight percent say they believe in God in the God of the Bible. In the survey, a majority of Americans, 58%, define their God as the one described in the Bible. Another one-third believe in a God or spiritual power, although not necessarily that of the Bible. All told, 9 in 10 Americans believe in some higher power working in our world, right? And so you can see Pew found at 66% identified as Christian. Uh, but isn't it interesting um, that there's 66% describe themselves as Christians, but only 58% say they believe in the God of the Bible, so there's a whole percentage of people who say they're Christians but don't believe in the God of the Bible. Don't know how that works, but that's what the poll teaches us. Here's what it says. Most Americans believe in heaven and hell. Trusting in God means he controls our eternal destiny. Nearly three-fourths of adult Americans believe in heaven, 73%. Slightly fewer, 62%, believe in hell. Now look at what the, the, the author of this article says, and this isn't written by the Pew Research, but look at this commentary. They said, but who can blame them? The prospects of being consigned there for eternity are grim. It's a place of torment. 51% believe in physical suffering and 53% in psychological anguish and eternal separation from God. 49%. So there are a lot of people who don't, the, the idea of hell just doesn't sit well with them, according to the Pew researchers. And so it has been even laced into our popular um, uh, our popular way of thinking. One of the, my favorite books I read, I went to public high school. I don't know if they let you, if they read Dante's Inferno in an Adventist school, <laughs> but, um, I read Dante's Inferno in high school and it was an understanding. This is, um, Dante's a, uh, one of the great Italian writers, a great understanding of how they viewed hell at the time. There are layers to it. If you look at the picture on the left, there are all the layers of hell. And as you go down, it gets worse and the devil is at the bottom. We're going to talk about is the devil in control of hell. That's um, a picture of, of Dante and, and, and the, the, the hell. And um, he, has a, he has three books. The one is Paradiso and known as Pur Purgatorio or it's Purgatory. And then, of course, the Inferno, which is hell. Um, the one that is most famous is the one on hell. And it has... Um, in many ways, fed how we even today see hell and death and the devil in popular culture, right? So when you're doing Bible studies with someone on these issues, you got to understand they come from a place where they have seen movies like Hellboy, which I don't think I've ever seen that movie, but he's like the good guy, but he comes from hell. There's another one. I couldn't even find a picture of him that wasn't so frightening. I could put it up here called Spawn. And he's the devil's spawn, the devil's child, and he's a good guy. And of course, I've talked to you about the TV show Lucifer before, who they say, you know, was in control of hell, but he came to Los Angeles. <laughs> Traded in hell for Los Angeles. La Ciudad de Los Angeles, right? The city of angels. And he is the fallen angel. So he went to Los Angeles, where he now exacts revenge on people for their bad deeds in Los Angeles. So the devil, you, you get what I'm saying? So you see how Satan has twisted the thing? That it's not Jesus who judges and rewards, it's Lucifer who does. 
I told you how even on the show, Michael the Archangel, Michael is the bad guy. He's the fallen one. So some of the questions for us to answer today that we want to look at uh, around the issue of hell. And again, this is one of the most important issues. You cannot defend our faith without understanding hell. And there's just Bible is all we'll use for do to do this. Number one question, is there a hell? Does hell exist? Does the, does the Bible actually teach that there is a place called hell? Number two, are souls in hell now? In other words, are people in hell right now burning and being tortured? I have seen right-wing evangelicals, when something happens and someone dies, saying that that person right now is being tormented in hell. Is that biblical? Number three, is the devil in charge of hell? as the TV shows would want to make you think. Number four, are the wicked punished forever? Right? Those are, the, those are four questions. Another one I'll throw in at the end, but those are the four questions. So first and foremost, the question is, is there a hell? Two Bible verses, and we can move to the next question. Number one, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 33, speaking to the Pharisees again, Jesus says, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape what? The damnation of hell. Is there a hell? Absolutely. Jesus says there's not only a hell, it is a place of damnation. So hell exists. At least the concept of hell exists. We'll see when it exists in a minute. Matthew 10 and verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. This is our scripture reading. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Something unique happens in hell. And what it is, is that it is, and we'll talk about more, it is a finality that the world does not recognize. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is what? It's death. If you lived forever in hell being tormented, would you actually have paid the cost of sinning? If what you do is get either eternal life in heaven or eternal life in hell, that would mean that the Bible is lying when it says that the wages of sin is death. So the next question then is, are there souls in hell right now? Are people burning in hell at this moment? Well, let's go to John chapter 5 and verse 28. It says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, we just read what Jesus says, the generation of vipers, can you escape the damnation of hell? When does that damnation happen? At the resurrection. That means that those who are in the grave now, as Jesus teaches, as we discussed in a previous message, they are asleep waiting the resurrection when they will get their reward. Ha. In other words, no one is rewarded when they die. Everyone, when they die, sleeps until they are resurrected. Now, we'll get into this at another time, but there are not one, but how many resurrections? Two resurrections. The first resurrection is the one I plan to be in. Amen. I'm not trying to be in that second resurrection. I've been second a lot of times in my life, but I won't be second that time. 
The first resurrection is the resurrection that happens before the millennium, and you get resurrected. And here's how deep that resurrection is, why you definitely want to be in it. One, you're saved. You see Jesus coming. You're happy to see him. If you're in the grave, you're resurrected to life. My mother, I talk about her all the time, was in her grave in Miami, Florida. That day, that grave will shake, rock. It'll move around, and she will come up out of that grave in glorified flesh. Gravity will have no power over her. And she will rise and meet Jesus in the sky. Amen? Ah, but there's another resurrection. That one happens after the thousand years. And in that resurrection, the wicked will come to life. Still with their broken bodies, the disease is still in them. They will not have been cured or fixed. Their bodies will not be glorified. And they will come up to a resurrection to receive their reward, which means nobody right now is experiencing their reward. No one is in heaven right now dancing around on the, on the streets of gold receiving their reward and no one is in hell right now being tormented and burned. Look how Job says it. Job 21, 30 and 32 says that the wicked is, re- that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. He asked the question. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. So they are reserved. What does that mean? They're put aside. They're held. Where are they held? They're held in the grave. They're, they're, they're waiting for this day. And then he clarifies it in verse 32. Yet shall he be brought to the grave and shall remain where? In the tomb. If the Bible does not teach that when you die, you go to hell and are being stuck with pitchforks and stuff and, and, and flogged and chased around. I don't know what they do to you down there, they think. But none of that is happening. You know what? Let me, let me, let me. The re, I believe God is so wise. He did all of this for a reason. You, when you, our loved ones die, we do not have to think or worry in the moment what's happening to them anymore. Whether you think they went to, they're to be saved or to be lost, right now you have no worries about their condition because all of them are asleep. That gives us peace because the focus can't be on where they're going. Your focus needs to be on where are you going. The Bible says to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Too many of us are worried about everybody else's salvation. So I'm going to throw in as a little caveat here. What about purgatory? Purgatory is supposed to be this place where you go and, and you work off your sins so you can go to heaven. In fact, I was reading about it. I've never read so much about it. And it says that basically, you know, you can, um, you, you, you know, you go there and you become a saint. That's what the Catholic Church believes. So you go to purgatory, you're tortured. Jesus comforts you there. Why are you in the fire? He's comforting you. That don't sound right to me. But you go there and you are purified. You, you, you work off your sins. In fact, you can even pay off your sins. In one uh, biography on John F. Kennedy, it's, they say that John F. Kennedy's family paid $10,000 in the early 1960s to have John F. Kennedy move from purgatory into heaven. That was wasted money because there is no such thing as purgatory, number one. Number two, I'm, I don't know if 10000 how do you know how much is enough? How would you know you paid enough money? Be like, eh, came up short. You got to stay down there longer. There's no purgatory. And this is literally the point of the parable we were discussing. You see, the parable's point is that the determined, your eternal determination cannot be made after you die. 
The chance you have is now to be saved. The Bible makes it clear that we are to make, Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. One of the devil's great tools is to make you believe that you're going to get another chance sometime later, whether in purgatory or after the secret rapture. You know, everybody's going to disappear. And then if you're left behind, as the literal movies and books are called, left behind, if you're left behind, it's all right. Because if you're left behind, you get another chance at being saved. No. Today is the day to work out your salvation. Today is the day to forge your relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no purgatory. There's no place you can go and mine bricks and move them around like Dante teaches in his, in his book. You can't do it. You've got to make your calling and election sure right now. Satan wants you to believe you have more time so that you will be caught up in spiritual procrastination. You can believe you can live a foul life now and as long as you get into purgatory, you'll fix it later. No, you won't. The word purgatory never appears in the Bible. There's no such thing as purgatory. It was created by Satan to make you believe somehow you'd get a second chance. Listen, your opportunity is now. Goes to the next question then. Is the devil in charge of hell? Does he have control? Does he, is he the governor of hell? Here's what the Bible says. Again, just a couple verses really makes this clear. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 18, the Bible says this. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries, speaking of Lucifer, Satan. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. Therefore will I bring forth a fire, where? From in the midst of thee. Did you get that? Satan's not in control of the fire. God's in control of fire, so much so that even though we're going to show you later on that he gets tossed into the lake of fire, Satan gets double combustion. He doesn't just burn on the, he, they don't just, he's not just roasted on the outside, the fire comes from the inside. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from in the midst of thee, it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. What will Satan ultimately be? ashes. Did you get that? Is he in control of hell? No. He is one. Jesus says it clearly. And I don't know if I put the verse in here, so I'll just say it now. J Jesus says um, that he's got, that, that, that uh, hell is created for the devil and his angels. Now watch this. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 says, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil is not in control of hell. But as we answer that question, it poses another one. Well, wait a minute. How is he going to be tormented day and night forever and ever? So we know he's not in control of hell. The fire is going to come from inside of him. He's going to get tossed into a lake of fire. There's nowhere in the Bible that says the devil is, is, is you know, spinning people on a, on a barbecue stick and sticking them. Nowhere in the Bible teaches anything like that. The cartoons do, but the Bible doesn't. So are the wicked punished forever? You know, the phrase eternal torment actually does not appear in the Bible. That phrase doesn't actually appear. But look at what the Bible teaches. Mark chapter 9 and verse 47 says, And if your eye offend you, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. 
where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So let me, I got to address the first verse because somebody's sitting there like, wait a minute, I like my eyes. Um, and there's a whole lot of this talk, as you'll see, cutting off eyes and hands. Jesus isn't saying that you physically do it. This is a spiritual statement that if there's something in your life that you hold dear to you, that you must be willing to separate yourself from it in order that you be saved. The sins that so easily beset us, we must be willing to give up. It says that the fire is not quenched. That means that the fire cannot be put out. Doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that the fire burns forever. It means that it can't be quenched. You can't put the fire out. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hell fire. So similar to the first verse, but it makes the same point, right? Everlasting fire, hell fire, does it burn forever? So the real question becomes, what does everlasting and forever mean in the scripture? Does it really mean that you burn without any end all, always and forever? You're going to find a fascinating truth. And we'll use to make this point the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Dead sea and you will float. And this is one of the great, that no one could explain this, but now they're saying that a meteor must have hit the place. And I don't have time to get into it today, but they have found torn apart bodies. They've found pottery that's been uh, charred. I saw one documentary where they said that they, from satellite images, they could see the shapes of buildings under the water. I don't know if that's true, but there's clearly people were here and clearly there was a massive destruction of more than just fire. That's why there's salt. That's why it's important. It was fire and it was brimstone. Now let's look at what the Bible says about it to tie this back to hell. Jude chapter one and verse six. And the angel which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that of the great day. So not even the demons are in hell right now, right? Even they're reserved for the day of judgment. But look at verse seven. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, just like the archaeologists have found, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what? eternal fire. Now, when I went to Israel, I didn't see nothing burning. But the fire is considered eternal. And let me explain why. Because when the Bible says that something is eternal, it is. there are a lot of ways that the Bible defines eternal. David says, you know, I will praise you forever and ever and ever. But in that book of Acts, he says, no, but David is buried in the grave. You know, he's not alive. The Bible says forever, it is for as long as you live. So when it says that the fires of hell will burn forever, it means it will burn forever as long as you exist, right? It doesn't mean it's going to burn forever in terms of time like we understand it. Their understanding was your forever was your season of life. All right. So they couldn't, if, so if that fire isn't still burning, hell's fire will not burn forever. Second Peter chapter two says it like this. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. What did they become? Ashes. Just as the, they say not a meteorite caused it. Condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should, that after should live ungodly. 
What does the Bible say then? Let's talk more specifically about hell's fire and it, the fact that it burns until everything is consumed. That's what it, the Bible teaches. Malachi chapter four, verse one, for behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. The day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them what? Neither root nor branch. If hell burned forever and you stayed in it, would there, you couldn't, this statement couldn't be made. They shall be stubble, says the Lord of hosts. He'll burn them up till they're consumed. And here it is. It is the consequences of hell's fire that lasts forever. Now, Malachi 4 and verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. So for those who love the Lord, right? He is going to come up uh, like the son of righteousness. When Jesus returns, he will be brighter than the sun. And we will go with him. So that's the fate of the, of the righteous. But look at verse three. Malachi 4, this is what the righteous will do. You will tread down the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes under the soles of your feet in the Lord, in the day that the, uh, in the day that I should do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Did you get that? The wicked are not going to burn forever. You're not going to be in heaven looking over at them being tortured. What kind of heaven would that be? I don't like seeing people tortured. When I was growing up in school, I couldn't stand seeing people getting bullied. I hated seeing people getting bullied. I can't imagine forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What kind of heaven would it be if you could hear the screams of the people in hell? No, they will be consumed. They will be ashes. Even Satan, don't miss this church, will be ashes under our feet. The Bible says um, uh, that, that the elements of this world, even the elements will burn with fervent heat. The earth will be completely sanitized, completely purified by this fire. So that, as we'll study later, God can now make a new heaven and a what? A new earth. Which leaves us to the last question. What is the real purpose of hellfire then? We now know the devil's not in control of it. We know it's real. Right? We know that if you burn in it, you don't burn. It's not going to go on forever and ever. You're not going to be tormented forever and ever. And no one's down there being tormented now. You get your reward when Jesus returns, which is fair. And the Bible actually teaches when you study it carefully that you, those, you know, if you're more wicked, you, you'll burn longer. Less wicked, you won't burn as long. You'll get the reward. You'll get what you did based on your works. Here's the purpose. Second Thessalonians. Um, I forgot chapter two, I believe this is. Six, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So Paul is saying, listen, um, you know, it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Verse eight, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this, verse 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction in the presence of the Lord and from the, and from the glory of his power. What is everlasting? The destruction. Notice the Bible says it's punishment, not punishing. And it is destruction, not destroying. 
At the end, they are destroyed. The purpose of hell is the eradication of evil and wickedness. It is to make it so that it is forever safe to live in this world free from sin. If the wicked burned in hell forever, guess what? You would always have the opportunity that sin exists somewhere in the universe. It is only by eradication of those things that we, when we get to heaven, you won't have to lock your door. You won't have to worry that somebody's going to run into your heavenly chariot and try and take off without check. I'm just kidding. You know, the heavenly chariots don't crash. Um, but in the seriousness of what we've seen recently, don't you have to ask the question, Lord, how long? When someone would walk into, I mean, we, we've now, in just the last week and a half, a Taiwanese church in, in California, a supermarket in a black neighborhood in New York, and then this thing that just happened in Texas? How do you, I mean, remember, remember that the, the reason for the first destruction of the world, when you read uh, Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that they were violent, that their thoughts were only evil continually. And that God got to a point where he says, listen, it, it would be unkind, don't miss this, it would be unkind and unmerciful to allow man to continue in this condition. Finally, God says, and he's going to say it about this generation. He is going to say, you know what? It's not right to leave man in that situation. I know most of y'all probably grew up in very safe place, but I remember working in the city of Hartford and having to walk from uh, um, 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 Travelers Insurance. I was a security guard. Yeah, I was. Uh, I wasn't a very good one because I always fall asleep because I did the third shift. But um, I, I would have to walk through Bellevue Square. Some of y'all don't even know B Square. B Square was one of the roughest projects probably in all of New England. And I used to have to cut through the projects to get to my job at the park at the top of the hill in Hartford. And I, I, was, so, I was always so glad that I did it at like 7 in the morning before everybody woke up. Because I would, I would have had to walk all the way around if I was trying to go through there during the middle of the day when everybody was awake. I've been to places where you are afraid for your life. Afraid of what man will do to you. Let me tell you something. This is why at the end, God is going to cut this whole thing short. This is why he's going to finally and once and for all eradicate evil and wickedness from this planet. You could never have heaven if you were always worried about what was happening in hell. Isaiah 1 and verse 28. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together. And they that forsake the Lord shall be what? Consumed. It's not going to go on forever. They're going to be consumed. God's going to put an end to it. This is what he says. Matthew 25. I did put the text in here. Matthew 25 and verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Is the devil going to be able to mount another uh, insurrection against God? No, he will be ashes. And even the, even the kings and the great people of the world who uh, adored him so much are going to look and they're going to ask, how has he been brought so low? He's never going to be able to bother anybody ever again. Revelation 20, 11 and 12. 
It says, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found what? No place for them. John the Revelator says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And we talked about this in the judgment. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's the two sets of books at least. One of them is the book of works, and the other is the book of life. You want the blood of Jesus, we talked about this before, to blot out what happened in the book of works. Amen? And you want him to write your name where? In the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to what? According to their works. This is why, I, listen, I want everything blotted out. When I pray, and I, 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 listen, there's a way to pray. One day I'll have to do my sermon on sanctuary praying. But there's a, you, there's a place you get in there where you've got to pray and appeal to God. It represents the stage of the sanctuary of the brazen, um, the brazen laver where you wash. And you've got to ask God, wash away my sin. But you know what ultimately happens in the most holy place? That is where sin is finally blotted out from off of Israel. When you pray, ask God to not just forgive you of his sin. Say, Lord, blot out my sin. Remember it no more. Say that out loud because it's not just that God needs to forget your sin. He's going to do that. He already promised it. But you need to forget your own sin. So you're not living, playing the tapes. As they used to say when I did addiction medicine. Playing the tapes over and over in your mind of all the stuff you used to do. Cut the tape and throw it away. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And look at, I love verse 14 of Revelation 20. It says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the what? Did you get that? Even death is going to die. Oh, that's a powerful thing. When we get to heaven, the reason you don't have to worry about death anymore, death itself is going to be dead. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Psalm 37, 10 and 20 says this, For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. The enemies of the Lord shall vanish into smoke, they shall vanish away. So this is why when I look at, you know, someone, you know, I have multiple, I have more than one relative that's been murdered. It's difficult. You think about the fact that someone snatched someone you love from you. But one of the reasons as a Christian I rest in God is that one, I, I actually can pray that the person who committed the crime comes to know Christ. Because I understand that I am a criminal in the, heavenly, in, in the heavenly realm if you look at what I've done in my life. I may not have done anything like that, but I've sinned and come short of his glory. And if he's willing to forgive me, I must be willing to forgive others. And my hope isn't simply that, you are, uh, you know, that, that you're forgiven I, 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 or that I can forgive you. My hope is that you can come to know Jesus Christ like I know him. But it also gives me the peace. That if the wicked don't repent, and if it seems like they escape judgment on this side, I know that my God, that's why the Bible Jesus says, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I shall repay. 
I don't have to live my life hoping that something terrible happens to someone who did me or someone I love wrong. I leave that in God's hands. There's peace that comes from leaving that in God's hands. The last question is tied to the, last, to, to the previous question. How can a loving God destroy the wicked? If God is love, how can he destroy the wicked? Ezekiel 33 and verse 11 says it like this. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What does God really want for all of us, even the worst of us? He says, but that the wicked turn from his way and do what? And live. Turn ye, Ezekiel says, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want to destroy the wicked. He wants to save you. Remember, we go all the way back into one of our earlier talks. God gave us the, the, the ability to choose. Why? Because he wanted you to choose to love him. Because there's one thing, a, a few things God can't do. He can't lie. And one other thing he can't do is he cannot force you to love him. So he wants you to choose him. So he doesn't, he has no, there's no benefit to God. It is pain to God that the wicked won't choose him and that they would die. Are you getting this? It doesn't make God happy, but God understands that he is the source of life. And if you choose to go in a direction opposite of God, by default, you have chosen death. Luke 9, 56. The son of man has not come to destroy men's life. What did he come to do? But to save them. He didn't come to destroy life. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. That's what he wants to give. Verse 17 is even just as powerful. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. The proof that Jesus did not want to destroy the wicked is that he came to earth and was beaten and destroyed himself. This is why it's so important to periodically, really an hour a day we are told, to go through and read the account of the crucifixion of Christ. Once you understand that, you understand that he bled and died and suffered so that all of us would have an opportunity he died the second death when he went into the tomb so that we would have a chance to avoid the second death. I don't think that God is not a God of love. He showed his love at the cross. The punishment that the wicked get, he would have happily taken for them. And he did take for them on the cross. They have refused the ticket that would give them life. Isaiah 28 and verse 21. For the Lord should rise up as in Mount Perizim, he shall be wrought as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his what? His strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. It is a strange thing for God to destroy and not create. No one will hurt more than God at the death of the wicked. To finish the story of the parable, Luke 16, 27 then he said, I pray thee therefore. So, that, so the rich man, remember, he said, listen, just have him dip his finger in some water and put water on my tongue so, so that I can, so I can live. But here's the real point of the parable. The rich man says to Abraham, father, that thou would send him to my father's house. I pray that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers 
that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He said, I want you to send Lazarus back to my brothers to convert them. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So the Jews had this belief that somehow there was all this communication going on, not biblical, not in the Old Testament. So Jesus uses that to his advantage for the Pharisees to tell them, if you're going to get it right, you've got everything you need to make it into the kingdom right now. Guess what? He's saying the same thing to us. Some of us are like, well, you know, if this happened, then I'd be saved. If that happened, then I'd take God seriously. I've heard people say, listen, I'll wait until I'm over my partying years to come to God. Getting through your partying years ain't guaranteed. A nightclub is a dangerous place. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Luke 16, 30, and he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if you send a dead person to them, they will repent. Now remember, they represent the Pharisees. And he said unto him, if you hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You know how powerful this is? Because this is all allegory. This is a parable. Obviously, when you look at it, you cannot, in no parable allows you to take doctrine from it, unless Jesus says you should. The parable is to make a point and a lesson. And the point here is, everything you need, you've been given now in order to be saved. If you wait till you die to try and be saved, or if you think someone can come back from the dead and save others, you're mistaken. But what's interesting about this story is that someone actually named Lazarus. A few weeks or short time later, I'll say it that way, a short time later, someone actually named Lazarus would be brought back from the dead. And guess what? The Pharisees still didn't believe. In fact, they hated Jesus even more. And that was when they finally ultimately decided he, Jesus, has to die. And they not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. If you understand the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in its context, you understand Jesus used a common story of the time, didn't give the rich man a name because he represented the Pharisees, but he gave the poor man the name of Lazarus and then raised a Lazarus from the dead. There was no way that they were without an excuse when Lazarus came back from the dead. Because he had already told them, even if a one from the dead came back to give witness, you would not believe it. And when it happened... Just as Jesus said, that's what happened. Let me tell you something, church. Don't look for Lazarus. Everything we need to be saved, we have been given. The blood has been shed. The price has been paid. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your place. He took my place. And everything we need in instruction is in God's word. And everything we need to communicate with him, we have in the opportunity to kneel and pray. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through uh, uh, some, some other form of, 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 of concoction in order to get to God. In the quietness of your own home, you can fall on your knees and call on the name of Jesus and my God will answer. The truth about hell is this. You don't belong there. It wasn't designed for you. God has prepared a place 
in heaven for you. And I'll close with this thought, one of my favorite texts in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It talks about, um, Paul says, there is now therefore laid up for me a crown and unto all those who uh, seek his appearing. So Paul says, there's a crown laid up for me. But when you go to the, 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 the revelation, Jesus says to the churches, he's, to one of the churches, he says, be careful lest another man take your crown. You know how powerful that is? The crown exists. It's up to you whether or not you accept it or you lose it. Be careful, church, lest another man take your crown. And with all we know, all the truth we have, no one will be more miserable in hell than the Adventist who has failed to live up to what they've been given who've lived in rebellion against the word of the living God, who have, who have taken God's mercy and counted it as a thing to be thrown away. Be careful, lest another man take your crown. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Help us, Father God, to understand the truth about hell, that you are not some vindictive, um, sadistic God looking to punish people forever. Father God, in mercy, you would rather everyone came to repentance and was saved. You're not some evil tyrant who uh, rules um, through bullying and torture. Father God, Jesus came and died on the cross. He suffered punishment like we would never understand in order that each one of us would have a right to heaven and the tree of life. Father God, I pray that we not allow another man to take our crown. I pray, Lord, that we not fail to live up to the truth we've been given. For, Lord, you say in your word that to whom much is given, much is required. Father God, give us the strength to live for you. We see the signs of the times, the spirit of God being removed from this earth. Now, Lord, our redemption draws nigh Help us, Lord, to be faithful to the end. You say in your word that he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Give us the strength of endurance, Lord, so that no one takes our crown. Pray this prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.